Hey there, all you nerds and nerdettes. Welcome to the Kibbles and Boys podcast, brought to you by your host, Harlan and Sam. Uh, we are two lifelong bros who survived being raised as sheltered homeschool kids and uh, now seek to connect in adulthood through this low-budget podcast. Kibbles and Boys aims to deliver high-flavor content on topics that interest us, such as media, current events, and science. Welcome to the Kibbles and Boys show. And I am burdened with glorious purpose. You'll crunch it, chomp it, absolutely devour it. This place is like Dr. Seuss's worst nightmare. Welcome to outer space class. So Harbob, what are we talking about today? Well, Samuel Woodburn, first of all, it's so good to see your face. Oh man. How are you doing on this Sunday afternoon? (laughs) I'm I'm doing good. I need to shave, but otherwise I'm doing great, man. Also, you shave too. Look, yeah, you look so good. Yeah, for our listeners, we're we're not actually recording the video, um, but but uh, Sam and I are FaceTiming each other while we're recording the audio, so we get uh, to to um, see each other's beautiful faces. But uh, I wouldn't have. Yeah, I don't think I would have agreed to this podcast if I didn't get to see your face every time we did it. Yeah, it's not necessarily. Um, we don't have a recording setup that's great for viewers. I'm um, currently sitting in some uh, some sweats right now, and I think uh, we, we told the <laughs> listeners that I had a uh, shoulder injury the other day, so I um, got this ice compression thing on. So if you hear any any like buzzing in the background, it's probably this machine cranking. But we are ready yeah. to talk about podcast stuff. But yeah, dude, back to your original question: um, What are we talking about today? I'm very excited about today's podcast. Uh, I don't know about you, but. Um, we are Very on excited. podcast, what is this, podcast number five. Um, so it high is. five to us. We have uh, recorded four so far, and we've concluded uh, our four-part series on the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which, dude, I love that, man. That was so much fun to, to, to dive into and discuss, and I think we kind of fleshed out some interesting um, kind of details and nuances with that. that I just, it was super cool. Um, that one was a blast, man. I Yeah, not to cut you off, I, I love doing that. It was funny to almost start off with the uh, side uh, series that we, you know, did with the Marvel Cinematic Universe as our first four episodes, but it was such a fun way to get going. Yeah, and it was good to, like, test out the, the format a little bit and kind of work on our audio equipment but and talk about something we love. But, I mean, like, this is the fifth podcast, but I honestly kind of see this one almost as a as a first of sorts because yes. this is yes. the first podcast we're doing in the realm that, that was the vision of, of this podcast, which is um, kind of touching on some science concepts and talking about... Things that we've had, man, we've had interest in some of this stuff going back over 10 years. We, I, I still remember like being like like uh, chubby 7th graders uh, talking about, well, you were chubbier than me. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I was the chubby one. You were, you again, you look like my snack. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But luckily you, you grew like 18 inches after 7th grade and, and all that just kind of stretched out on your frame so now you're a, a strapping uh, hulk of a super yeah for people out there if you're if you're an awkward seventh or eighth grader right now just know that uh if you can grow eight to ten inches and keep the same weight you're at it does wonders <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> and then also if you uh if you go on a covid diet where you lose 10 pounds in the middle of oh, the summer yeah. you, you can stay at a healthy weight so I'm not saying that yeah, we but, almost didn't finish our marvel podcast covid almost took me out <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But luckily so we got a, through it. We gave him some superhero serum, and he's back on the hunt. But yeah, so today, I'm, I'm so excited. We're talking about natural disasters. Um, 
dude i think we've been like talking and like speculating on natural disasters for like years man it's been like it's kind of interesting how fascinating natural disasters are um i was i was researching some a little bit this week and it's like it's kind of morbid because it's like you're looking at death counts and looking at disasters that destroy civilizations and you're like oh my god it's like thousands hundreds thousands millions of people died because of um whether a tsunami or a flood or a volcano or something like that that um that went off but man there's something that's just kind of really kind of eerie but also interesting and fascinating about uh natural disasters occurring on this planet um what do you what do you think sam like i feel like we've been mentioned this for a while we, we've been talking about this one for a long time, and that's why I'm super excited that even though we, we did the Marvel episodes first, that this is going to be, like you said, our almost our episode one for what our main idea for this podcast was, uh, is going to these natural disasters. Uh, for me, like you said, it, you know, it can be easy to get kind of numb to what happened with the death counts and all that, but I actually think it's really important to talk about these because uh, not all of them, but a vast majority of these are, to be you know scarily honest, they're not really anything we can do anything about. Yeah, I mean, minus early warning systems to evacuate people, uh, but that's why I think it's important that people realize how severe these are. Um, I mean, I think a great example was when Hurricane Katrina hit, how devastating that was. And oh my gosh! Any of the hurricanes that have yeah. hit after that, I think people have been have taken it much more seriously to leave and get out of the area. You know, just because um, I don't think a lot of people realize the crazy things our planet can do. <laughs> so I, I think you're right. That's such uh, a good point that like um, to bring up about talking about these disasters because um, that can m- help prepare people for future disasters and kind of equip them for even if it's something as simple as stocking up on water and food. Um, yeah, that's pretty interesting. But so today, what we're talking about is uh, so the the challenge that we gave ourselves was both Sam and myself have gone off. And we have researched one natural disaster that has occurred at some point throughout history that we find interesting. It doesn't necessarily have to be the most deadly one or the most dramatic one, but it's one that kind of really piqued our interest on, wow, that was a crazy event that occurred that Mother Nature just was wreaking crazy havoc on the Earth. And we're going to kind of talk about it. We're going to um, kind of riff on it and, and um, um, kind of dissect what the, uh, what the event was. And then, I'm actually uh, excited for this, after we discuss um, each of our individual natural disasters, we're going to go into a second phase of the podcast before we conclude and talk about what-if scenarios. And this is, this is kind of like looking over the horizon of the future about what if a disaster that has not yet occurred, or maybe occurred in the past, but has a possibility of returning and returning with devastating damage what would that look like with modern society I'm, I'm really excited to unpack some of that stuff i'm really excited for that too i, I think that's probably part i'm more excited about it, or the most excited about on this podcast I, another thing too is that uh, at least for me when i was researching this i guess we'll find out what he you know what we each decided to discuss here in a moment but the idea that some of these impacts i guess it was like the horror element of there really isn't anything you can do about it some of yeah. them really are um Things are peaceful and quiet, and the next thing you know, you know, bam, uh, you get hit with this massive natural disaster. So, you know, there's some, like, hurricanes and stuff. Go ahead. Yeah, so, like, I mean, on that line, like, I think that, like, throughout history, we've gotten a little bit smarter in designing um, infrastructure that can maybe withstand certain things. Like, you see a lot of um, the... uh, the um, buildings that are built on the west coast in California along the San Andreas fault line where it's prone to have uh, substantial earthquakes. Architects have gotten smarter about building uh, or designing buildings that can withstand earthquakes. But a lot of these massive disasters that occurred throughout history um, 
happened and there was not a whole lot of technology or science that was um, available to really prepare people as far as setting them up for success for the infrastructure and you see civilizations getting demolished by a flood a tsunami an earthquake because they're just not equipped for it uh which is kind of crazy uh it, it is insane. and it is insane and I, I do want to note too at least for me i really liked uh i wanted the natural disaster i could find a lot of information on so you know of course we were willing to go back to before there a lot of today's technology was around yeah for these disasters but i also wanted to be at the point where i could get accurate or somewhat accurate information and some accounts of what happened so um, I know for us, we were kind of, I know like off, off record, we were kind of thinking about trying to stay within that late 1800s, early 1900s as far, you know, as, as basically as the furthest back we would go, uh, just so that we could actually have some of the details and facts to talk about this. Yeah, exactly. Extent, but, and, you know, I think yeah. that's a perfect um, segue because I'm actually really excited to unpack your uh, disaster you decided to research. So yeah, so I know we're, we're dancing uh, around the bush. What you, uh, yeah. what you researched and what we're going to talk about today for our first dis- natural disaster throughout history, folks. Excellent. So I am into facts. So I did. I have my sheet here and I have uh, a lot of information. So what I researched, and this one really caught my eye. Uh, interestingly enough, this one had an extremely low death count, uh, but I thought the concept of it was terrifying and there was a lot of luck involved on this. But my, uh, my natural disaster was the Tunguska impact. Tunguska um, impact. How, wait, so how do you spell that? Tunguska. Uh, t- so I heard it pronounced two ways. There's Tunguska and then Tinguska, but it's spelled T-U-N-G-U-S-K-A. So uh, it's a area in basically in the middle of nowhere in the Siberian wilderness, and this occurred back in 1908, uh, specifically June 30th, 1908. Okay. And it was, I guess they referred to as the Tega Forest in Siberia. So it, at this time, this was, you know, before the rise of Russia and all that. Uh, so this was literally just a massive incorporated wilderness. You had people out there, I guess, hunting. This is even before the start of World War One. So you can, you know, think from a technology standpoint, there wasn't a whole lot around. The people, the few people that were out there were uh, very isolated from the rest of the world. Um, but... To get into the events of what happened, uh, there is a lot of theories on this, and the reason this one caught me by hand is because there is so much turmoil in the scientific community about what really happened with this event. Okay. Um, even today, there's still a lot of debate. So, and the reason that's why I wanted to preface with uh, you know what what some of the issues were with this and why there's some debate because I'm going to talk about several theories around it, or at least some of the more I legitimate ones. But what ended up happening was the Tunguska impact in 1908. Um, it was actually pretty early in the morning. I think a lot of people estimate it's around seven, between seven and eight a.m. is what I've seen mostly referred to. But again, the people were able to see this in different time zones. It was such a big deal. So, a uh, what's theorized is happening was that a meteor entered our atmosphere, okay, and landed in the Siberia, the uh, I guess the Tega Forest in Siberia. Wait, um, how, it, bi- how big a meteor are we talking about? Well, again, we're, there's a lot of debate, but. The idea is that this was between 160 to 300 foot, uh, 320 foot meteor. All right, so 300 feet. That's so that's uh, like a football, football field, field. Is oh my gosh. Okay. Coming in at 45,000 miles per an hour. Oh my god. Um, so this, in a matter of minutes, from the point this thing landed, it took out nearly 80 million trees, were flattened, and just destroyed in seconds. It was an estimated 800 square mile radius. So over half a million acres were just gone in the middle of the Siberia wilderness. 
People that were witnessing this said that they saw a bright light was seen in the atmosphere and it lasted approximately one minute. And so that's what, of course, a lot of people, a lot of people mentioned it having a blue hue. So, of course, this was people are like, oh, hey, this is a meteor or a comet, something along those lines. The terrifying part about this event is that no crater has ever been found. So, so okay, unpack that a little bit because you have this massive meteor that's uh, it's striking 800 square miles. And I'm trying to figure out what that is uh, as far as like size because that's a massive amount of... Uh, mileage um there's no yes. there's no impact crater that's been found why, why is that so this is the, the, so this is the part that this thing blew my mind i had to really get into research i had to research a lot of areas of things that some of it to be frank went over my head uh when this thing hit uh there were basically eyewitness accounts all the way in great britain at the time of people that said they saw what looked like the sky was on fire and splitting in two um just to give you an idea of the amount of damage this did, I couldn't find specific names, but it was shown that NASA scientists actually in the 50s were researching um, how much damage this meteor did or what the power of it was. And they estimate that it was about 185 times greater than the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. Oh my gosh, that is crazy. So a couple things here. That is a massive amount of uh, force. I just looked up the distance from uh, Great Britain to Siberia, and Google's telling me over three thousand miles. Yeah, three. I was about to say yeah, that. So I actually have that in here too. It's about approximately three thousand miles. Jeez. And, and keep in mind um, that this was in the center of Siberia, roughly. If you look at it, I mean, that's very proximate. But uh, one of the testimonials, the person, this is uh, from again. Unfortunately, they don't have the names for these individuals. But uh, when Russia went out to investigate after this event happened, they interviewed some people in some of the nearby trading posts and areas, you know, within whatever, 40, 50 kilometers of where this happened. Uh, one testimony literally said that the, the sky was split in two and high above the forest fire, you know, high above the forest, the whole northern part of the sky appeared covered with fire. That so I know I'm being kind of crazy. vague right now, but you gotta think back in your 1900s, you, you gotta think this feels like the end of the world. Um, Dude, so, just to break it down, I'm looking at these distances because the, the that distance metric actually kind of freaks me out. Because, so you're sitting in uh, in in Georgetown, Texas, or Hutto, Texas, right now. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sitting in uh, Chantilly, Virginia. Um, we are about 1,500 miles apart from each other. So that is yes. half the distance. So if like if if some event occurred in in my city, and I'm like. Oh, I'm going to call up Sam and see if he heard it. That'd be absolutely asinine. He'd probably think I was uh, sipping a little too much booze that day. <laughs> Dude, this occurred twice the distance that you and I are from each other right now. And there are yes, people in Great Britain that insane. are like saying they can they can witness this event happening. This is that's and again, these are massive magnitude. These were just eyewitness accounts. That's the only thing I do want to say with a grain of salt. This is early 1900s. These are people account that were interviewed sometimes even like years or some. I actually heard some of these testimonies were taken like two decades after. So because uh, at the time it was just so little was known about what happened. Um, yeah. Just to let you know, the BBC at the time, you know, they recorded or reported that uh, there was doors, windows and buildings that were smashed and damaged. People knocked off their feet hundreds of kilometers away from where this impact happened. Okay. So wow. imagine you're standing hundreds of you know kilometers, so let's say 150, 200 miles away, and all okay. of a sudden you just get concussed and blasted off your feet. I mean, that's, it's just moly. horrifying. So you got to realize that the population density out here was, I mean, almost non-existent, minus those small trading outposts, Thank things God. like that. So there's 
Exactly. That's why I wanted to talk about why this was so terrifying and why I think it's not more well-known. There's only three confirmed deaths. Because, I mean, this was literally in the middle of nowhere in the wilderness. Um, There was all types of crazy theories about what happened at the time. And even going up until 60, 70 years later, there's people that talked about it being, of course, the the main one being meteors. Uh, There's people that thought it was UFOs. People that thought it was some type of volcanic event uh, caused by mining. There's people that thought it was weapon tests. I mean, there was all types of crazy theories for this. Uh, the main theories in the scientific community, though, of course, revolve around the cause being a meteor of some type. Um, so to kind of briefly touch on that, there's uh, one thing I think people should know is that there's you know a difference between the like a an asteroid and a comet. So an asteroid is going to be mostly rock based okay. and minerals, much more solid. A comet, which you generally see when you uh, when people say like a shooting star, uh, that generally has like a, a, a gaseous hue behind it. So when you see like that blue hue that follows a comet, uh, or when you see something in the sky, that's generally what it, what a comet is. So it's going to be mostly comprised of dust, gas, and ice. Uh, so that's the thing with comets is they generally burn up in the atmosphere because they're mostly gas and space dust. Uh, they don't have near as much um, they don't have near as much solid material comprising them. So so you're not so, it's not really uh, like logical to think that a comet is going to make an impact into a planet such as earth that has an atmosphere because it's comprised of materials that are going to get burned up is that what you're saying generally yeah so that's the idea is that it would have to be a, a very large comet to get into our at, through our atmosphere and still have some of its mass left and, and at that point it would probably be greatly reduced in size that's at least my understanding of it from reading everything wait what, so what um, is a what is a shooting star is a shooting star a comet or an asteroid my understanding is that a shooting star is most commonly a comet because uh, they're more visible because of the you know the gases that make up the comet when they interact with our atmosphere like the edge of it and okay. that's why they're much more visible when you see like those, you know, again, they call them a shooting star. And generally, that's a very small comet. That's something that's very small. It's going to either pass by our planet or if it does go into our atmosphere, it probably just basically gets eaten up by it. So interesting. Um, yeah, sorry. I'm going back into getting context. No, no, you're good. I, I feel I'm like I'm going back to questions. like third grade, uh, like like <laughs> science class. Like it's really uh-huh. kind of bringing me back. But honestly, it's been so long that I've kind of forgotten a little bit. So well, thanks for walking our third me grade, through some, yeah. of these, uh, some of these uh, differences in like asteroids and comets. Okay, so. I was just going to say our third grade science class was like, you know, at a, a table in a living room since we were homeschooled. So yeah, uh, I think it's, it's okay for us to ask these questions. Potentially deprived of... Uh, deep science so yeah back to asteroid versus comet uh what do they think the the tunguska event was an asteroid so there's there's three main theories uh that basically most parties of scientists believe uh, from what i've seen they all involve it being an asteroid or comet uh so again a meteor which encompasses both of those items uh, so all three theories revolve it around being a meteor of some type, but all three theories to an extent leave some questions that just don't make sense. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to look at those three theories. And uh, at that point, I do want to read um, a quick eyewitness account that was actually one of, it was one of the closest eyewitness accounts that they were able to capture to the event. Let's hear it. Uh, again, this is in a very, ex- this is a, a quote uh, that was taken, I want to say, I couldn't find the exact year this quote was taken. It sounds like it was taken several years after the event. Uh, But this is the quote from the gentleman that uh, spoke about what happened. He said, at breakfast time, I was sitting by the house at the Vannevar Trading Post. And just for people that are listening, the Vannevar Trading Post or that Vannevar area is approximately 40 miles from 
where they estimate where the, the main part of this blast was at. Uh, he suddenly, the general said he was facing north. He suddenly saw that directly to the north over the Tunguska Road, the sky split in two and fire appeared high and wide over the forest. He said the split in the sky grew larger and the entire northern side was covered with fire. At that moment, I became so hot that I couldn't bear it as if my shirt was on fire. From the northern side where the fire was came strong heat. I wanted to tear off my shirt and throw it down, but then the sky shut closed and a strong thump sounded. I was thrown a few meters back. I lost my sense for a moment, but then my wife ran out and led me to the house. After that, such noise came as if rocks were falling or cannons were firing. The earth shook, and when I was on the ground, I pressed my head down, fearing rocks would smash it. When the sky opened up, hot wind raced between the houses like from canyons, which left traces in the ground like pathways, and it damaged some of my crops. Later, we saw that many windows were shattered, and in the barn, a part of the iron lock snapped. So again, these guys are from 1900s. They don't they don't have the same knowledge and understanding of science we do today. So you got to understand how terrifying this recount must be for somebody who probably doesn't even know that you know a, a meteor or something like that coming from the sky is like a possibility. You know, dude, I think that what you just said right there is one of the craziest things about analyzing this these historical events is the fact that there's not a, as much uh, sensing technology uh, available to predict or even foresee these events happening so you're getting these eyewitness events of crazy situations and these people have no idea what's happening like it's that's that's actually kind of crazy to me like now we're kind of blessed with having satellites that have sensor capabilities we have um like weather um sensors that are going to be predicting a lot of some of the a lot of these natural disasters and you have richter scales that are measuring earthquakes a lot of this stuff that happened even just like pre 1900 is like in the realm of like oh well i don't know if we're i don't, I don't know what's happening and like it's pretty it's pretty interesting to see like the uh the impact that that people have and and this it's got to be super scary to have um these disasters occur and you don't know what's happening you're just kind of sitting yeah. in the situation no, it's it's terrifying. It, it, it honestly almost gave me like uh, goosebumps up my back when I was reading about this, just seeing how terrifying that would be, you know, like not knowing what's going on. And uh, one of the pictures I saw, I guess, that was taken after this happened was just crazy. I mean, all the trees, the branches, leaves, everything is just gone. The only thing you see is just, I mean, as far as the eye can see, just straight logs, you know, from the wilderness, just all flattened out, leaning one direction. Um yeah, it's just the craziest thing. So I did want to say there were several unconfirmed reports. Again, we're in the middle of Siberia. You know, we are in the 1900s. But uh, there was a lot of reports of people having se severe sunburns, burned corneas, lost reduced hearing, and disorientation, uh, which, again, people now think was most likely concussions. I mean, people were just concussed from the amount of uh, shock that this blast had. Wait, so how far away were these people, like the furthest person away that has reports that they're getting concussed. Do we know how far I, that way that person is? I unfortunately cannot find anything. Um, again, the there was the the person, the closest person that we know of that apparently survived. It was this gentleman in the Vonavera who was forty kilometers away, and so you know, and then that was his firsthand recount account of what happened. So uh, the BBC again, like I said a little earlier, had reported that there were uh, people that had you know there was damage to windows, buildings, people that got thrown back, and that there was reports of that happening hundreds of kilometers. It's interesting, too, because when I looked at the, the topographic map of this area, it's not flat. 
Uh, I mean, it has a lot of flat areas, but it's not completely flat. So it's, it's hard to know too that, you know, someone who's 50 kilometers away may be less affected than someone who's a hundred kilometers away based on how, um, the shock of that blast travels. At least that's what I would think. Yeah. It, so. Cause the, the wave propagates and kind of attenuates exactly. in power. So there's that for all we know, there might've been a lot of, uh, a lot of large hills or small mountains or whatever between, uh, where that gentleman at the Vanavera trading post was and, uh, where the blast occurred. Cause I was kind of shocked to find out there was somebody who was that close to it who survived uh, yeah, after seriously. seeing how far the damage went. So I didn't want to get into the three theories here and I'm going to yes. read all three of these okay. and definitely feel free to jump in with questions though. So well, I tried so to, I, before you read them, yes. I, I want to hear. So when you, when you read these three, after you read the three, I want to hear what your opinion is on which theory. I do have an opinion. Yes. Is the accurate <laughs> one. So the first theory, and this, from what I could tell, was like the first major one or major serious one, you know, besides there being like a black hole. And I actually, I should quickly give a list of honor mentions. There is a rabbit hole for this event. There's people that think like, I mean, just crazy course far out things that we won't talk about. But like, I mean, there's people that thought it was, you know, the center of a black hole opening up. There were people that thought it was like a UFO crash site. I mean, there was a lot of stuff circulating on this, which... Again, early 1900s, I can kind of see some of it, but when you're reading, some people still think that's, you know, the 80s and 90s, there are people thinking that. I was like, no, that's <laughs> that's, a, that's a little out there. Um, but the uh, first theory initially was simply it was a meteorite. Again, uh, this one had the theory was that it was a asteroid. So again, like more of a rock-based, and that it was large enough to get through the atmosphere without fully burning up. Um, and so it was large, so large that once it got through all the atmosphere, it, it entered and hit the Siberian wilderness. Again, uh, this was the thought for the longest time for several years after the event. But since even after we started getting satellite imaging up, no crater site was really ever found. Uh, this was the biggest issue with the theory is that there's no crater site. If a meteor is large enough to get through our atmosphere, there should be a massive, massive crater site that's visible on satellite imaging. Uh, and nothing like that's ever been found. And also, they've sent several research expeditions uh, from several Russian universities. Again, I apologize, I couldn't find the specific names for them, but uh, apparently no meteorite fragment for this event has ever been found. Wait, so you're saying that, that most of the the um, proof that this occurred is by eyewitness accounts, but they haven't been able to, like, forensically, like, like yeah, back no that up? Large yeah, no, like large meteor fragment was ever found. No crater was found, and for you know, for something to do this much damage, there should a hundred percent be a crater, and there should also be fragments scattered around the forest um, from the meteor as it came through the atmosphere. And there's nothing that they've ever found. I think it's interesting so, that they that Wikipedia entry calls it the Tunguska event because I think that the word event kind of exactly highlights the fact that they don't exactly know what happened here. It, and it, it is it's terrifying uh even today that there's still you know there's not a full agreement on it like i said there's a main theory uh it's a newer one it's the one i believe but which i think explains most of the issues uh so the second theory and again the most plausible theory here is going to revolve around the cause being a meteor airburst so i had to research this quite a bit so what a meteor airburst is is essentially a meteor of diverse makeup of different elements but being mostly made of rock is generally much lot and it's generally much larger than uh, what would be like the type of game that we would see as like a shooting star. We're talking about a pretty big meteor right here, uh, kind of within the range of 160 to 300 plus feet in uh, diameter. 
Uh, so this type of meteor, they said, has the speed, mass, and size to make its way further down to the thicker parts of our atmosphere before burning up. And actually, in some cases, again, we don't know everything that causes this, as there's not a lot of meteor strikes or large meteors that hit our planet. Uh, but they will explode before they hit the ground. So they explode in our lower atmosphere um, with basically, the again, the force of many nuclear bombs. So the, this second theory, uh, since there was no fragments and no crater found, is that the, a large meteorite came into our atmosphere low enough, uh, they want to say about 10 kilometers above the ground, and that it blew up in the sky, okay. and that this basically event is what the shockwave from that explosion above this, you know, Siberia, uh, Tega Forest, is what caused all the devastation. Uh, people also say with the reason that they think this could have occurred is that also with it being about, you know, eight to 10 kilometers up in the air, it would have explained why people so far away were eyewitnesses to this event and why people were describing the sky was on fire. Uh, if an explosion that large happened, you know, several kilometers above the surface. So this one makes a lot of sense to me. So again, question. Yes. Um, that's really interesting. So for both of these, um, this is kind of like a, a question that probably would apply to either of the um, scenarios. Were there any reports of telegraph lines being compromised by this event? Not that I saw. And again, I, I think it would be tough to know because we're so far in the middle of the, I mean, if you look at how big Siberia is and where this impact occurred, I mean, you'll realize, I mean, there really was nothing around for, I mean, hundreds of miles minus, you know, a couple small little trading posts, things like that, small villages. I mean, it, um, I couldn't find it even an estimated population at the time. I don't think there was anyone who even knew what the population of the wilder people were out there, you know? Well, so the, uh, the reason why I asked that question is because um, one of the things that uh, kind of in the speculation of um, the what if disasters in the future, um, I was talking to a friend about uh, what would happen if you detonated a nuclear weapon in the atmosphere um, above a metropolitan area and what would result based on this scientific study is that you would have this electromagnetic pulse, this EMP pulse that would knock out, um, generally like knock out uh, like electrical production. I've and heard that as well. Devices. Yeah. So I'm curious if this, uh, if this thing exploded either on land or um, eight to 10 kilometers up, if it released kind of an EMP pulse that had uh, impact on electromechanical devices. The crazy thing though is that unfortunate fact is that we don't really know because it's 1908. So there's not a whole lot mm -hmm. of electromechanical devices that are working and operating, keeping society alive in that in that age, which is kind of interesting. Exactly. We're, maybe we're thinking of early 1900s. Yeah, early 1900s Russia, um, which, you know, I can't think they had a ton of that anyway. And then on top of that, you take this and put it in the middle of nowhere. So it does, unfortunately doesn't give us a really good, uh, doesn't give us a lot of data on what, what would happen currently or in today's society. Okay, so so just to, to recap, you've given two examples of um, the the theories. One that it made impact, um, but then the Which second doesn't really one, make much sense. Yeah, because there's not a whole lot of uh, there's not a whole lot of data or forensic science that basically says like, hey, there was a crater here. The second one is that it it, it exploded eight to ten kilometers above ground. Why would it explode that close to the Earth without like making impact? Do you happen to know why? I don't, and that's I mean, that's the huge question. That's why I think they still call it the Tunguska event because there is no, um, we just don't have enough information on meteors hitting our atmosphere to know. But it's really the only logical explanation at this point, or a you know a derivative of that. 
Uh, so I didn't want to kind of finish out the second theory before I go into the final one, yes. which um, I do, again, think the second theory is the most plausible. Uh, but the third one is really just a updated version of that theory. So uh, I should, probably shouldn't say this is three separate theories, but the third one is like an updated one that helps explain some of the questions in the second theory. Okay. Uh, so again, to wrap out the second theory here, uh, you know, the, some of the scientists, though, again, like I said, that, you know, talked about it being a asteroid. Some scientists had issue with this theory because, again, um, they felt like there it doesn't explain the lack of fragments. If this was an asteroid being mostly rock based and it blew up. They would think, you know, being large enough to come through our atmosphere, that we would have found some type of large fragment by now. And again, that's maybe we wouldn't, but that's there are a lot of people that disagree with this because of that reason, and uh, with the amount of expeditions that have been out there. Uh, there was a gentleman. I'm going to butcher his name here. His name was Victor uh, Vastinska oh, from the you. National Academy. Yes, thank you. Uh, from the National Academy of Sciences of Ukraine. Uh, his colleagues, apparently this was in, I want to say the early 2000s, were using some spectro, uh, spectroscopy techniques, I was just butchered that, to identify aggregates of carbon minerals. And they were looking for um, lonsdalite, uh, which apparently is only formed under extreme pressures. And they did say, it sounds like they found some of this material when they were testing a lot of the... Uh, some of the soils and stuff around where the blast site was at. So some people think that there was a meteor explosion over, but that the blast was so large that basically anything that came down was essentially dust. You know, it was, it was, there wasn't large fragments of rock or anything. And, uh, this kind of goes into then uh, the third theory, uh, which I do want to go into. I apologize if this feels a little disorganized at all. Uh, there's just a lot of information on this one, a lot of varying opinions. Um, but again, the other idea kind of revolving around the same theory is that the meteor was specifically a comet. Um, okay. And this is, and I apologize too, I think I misspoke a little earlier when I said this, but there's, there's three theories. This is kind of the updated version of theory two. Uh, before I get into theory three, and I, th I think theory two again is the one that's the most, uh, the most plausible. Okay, so uh, this, the wait, idea. So this is theory two point five. So theory, exactly, so I thank you. Yeah, theory, theory two, two is that. So just to recap, because I'm trying to, I'm hearing this for the first time. Um, so I'm, I'm with the fellow listeners. So the 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 first theory is the asteroid or comet impacted the Earth and created this explosion. Um, the second theory is the this asteroid or comet detonated eight to ten kilometers above what is now Siberia, and you're about to unleash theory two point five, which is an updated version of that detonation, kind of above the ground. Is that what you're saying? Yes. So initially, uh, theory two was mostly thought to be a asteroid. Uh, theory two point five presents that this meteor was actually a comet. Uh, again. Most belief is that since comets mostly ice and dust, it does not get that far into the atmosphere. Um, especially because I guess uh, when you're getting 10 kilometers up, you're really hitting, I guess, some of the thicker points of our atmosphere, it sounds like, and most uh, smaller uh, meteors just won't get that far. Uh, and again, when I say meteor, that encompasses both an asteroid or a comet. So just to understand, the, the theory on this one works the exact same. Uh, but the idea is that the comet was, again, they don't have an idea, but it was very large, probably 300 plus feet. Uh, it came in with the most enough speed and enough mass that it was able to get through most of our atmosphere. 
And then uh, with it being mostly gas, they think whatever was the makeup of this specific comet interacted with our atmosphere and blew up. Uh, I mean, just had a massive explosion. Uh, one reason people like this is, again, it happened above ground, which explains the no crater, just like the first part of theory two. And with it being mostly an ice and gas base, it explains why there's no fragments. Because, uh, I mean, it's literally mostly ice, gas, and space dust. So when it explodes, there's not a lot of physical evidence left behind. Um, so a lot of people, yeah, this was really the main theory, it uh, sounds like, from the 70s. And even now, most people believe this. I kind of believe this has to, even though I know it still leaves some questions, I think this is probably the most plausible theory. Uh, one more recent theory that came out in 2013 uh, from a team of researchers uh, was that they were apparently running a lot of uh, simulations on different asteroid impacts. Uh, this one just was really interesting to me. But again, you know, I still think theory two kind of resounds the most with me. Uh, but they think a meteor uh, closer to the range of 500 to 650 feet in diameter uh, made up mostly of straight iron. So they think this meteor would have been mostly iron um, hurled into Earth's atmosphere at about 45,000 miles per hour, but it came in at a gentle angle. So they don't think it actually entered the atmosphere. They think it slammed into the atmosphere, but came in at an angle of 10 to 12 degrees to where it went through our atmosphere, but still past the Earth. And I don't know if they were specifically researching something else and decided to apply this research to the event, or if they were specifically doing this research to try to determine the event. I couldn't find a, you know, I guess a specific quote in the article for that. Okay. Uh, but it was extremely interesting because yeah. uh, the concept of it was that, yeah, you have a massive meteor, mostly made of iron, so it's very dense, very heavy. Uh, and that when it hits our atmosphere at the speed it's going, that this tangential angle, that it basically makes an explosion. Um, but this atmosphere being so dense and so large and being made of iron, it actually mostly stays intact. Wow. And the idea is that the meteor actually goes through at a slight angle on our atmosphere and flies out. So it never impacts our Earth. It actually flies by. Um and the crazy part is, though, that the impact of all of this iron interacting with our atmosphere creates a massive shockwave. And at the angle it's going, it flies into, uh, basically, that makes the smash site going into the uh, Tega Forest in Siberia. Uh, this one, again, is interesting because it helps explain why there's no crater, no fragments. And it, they said if it came in at a gentle angle, it actually would have hit the atmosphere somewhere much, much further from where the Siberian forest was. We're talking about a massive, I mean, a 600, potentially a 600 foot plus meteor um, that could have made straight impact. Uh, this one, though, is interesting because the idea, too, is that with all these eyewitness accounts being so far away, this meteor coming in at a tangential angle would have explained why people that said they saw the sky on fire from so far away still, because it didn't actually hit directly over the Siberian forest. It probably would have made a tangential somewhere between. Europe and Siberia, you know, over, and that's why, and that then the actual shockwave itself, though, came in at an angle and hit the Siberian forest. So, again, there's some really complex stuff to this one, uh, but it was very, very interesting theory. Um, and apparently, the simulations they ran did show that if a theater, you know, a meteor with enough mass and enough iron in it, you know, grew, like hit our atmosphere like that at an angle, that it, the shockwave could actually travel like a freaking missile and hit place on the planet so pretty terrifying stuff yeah it, it's it's horrifying um but again that's those are the three theories i personally kind of still lean toward the comet one uh that one it's terrible as all these are that one uh, also is a little less terrifying than me than a massive meteor made of iron just 
pulverizing the planet. Uh, but again, I think all three of these are terrifying, and the low death count I think makes this one um, not as on the forefront as some other natural disasters. But again, if this had landed in you know Shanghai or Tokyo or New York, uh, we would have been talking about millions of deaths. Dude, that is crazy. That is absolutely crazy. I mean, the amount of luck that this was early 1900s in the middle of nowhere in Siberia, because uh, even with today's population, if something like this happened, I, I can't see. I mean, they would have to be, you know, with how much the population's increased since early 1900s, which I, I probably should have looked at it, looked into that. But, uh, yeah, I got to think that the death toll would be, even if it hit a more remote place, the death toll would still be really high in today's, um, with today's population. That is absolutely crazy and like honestly like asteroids kind of freak me out because i mean ever since i ever like and it's kind of a hollywood shtick movie the uh the bruce willis film armageddon like <laughs> yeah, ever one. since seeing that i've kind of had this like what if scenario in, in in my brain like what if that asteroid came and was trying to impact earth like how would we prepare? Like, I think we have pretty substantial um, satellite sensing technologies and pretty substantial military capabilities. I don't know if if humanity is at the point where if we ha- knew that an imminent asteroid was coming, we could prevent it from striking Earth. I don't know if we could do that. That's why I chose this one. Because uh, I think technology's gone to the point that we know, yeah, we know about them before they show up. We can have probably a heads up. Uh, some, we might even get like months or years even before it you know, hits. Uh, but that's the terrifying part to me is that all we have is a warning for it. We, as of now, like you said, I don't know of any way that we have capabilities to stop something like that. So, and I don't want to downplay earthquakes or hurricanes, but generally those are isolated into areas. So it's if, if you're... In one of those areas, we have a little bit of a warning system. You have a chance to generally get out in most cases. Or like you said, for Earthquake, we've better built our, our structures. We're trying to you know, make ourselves uh, more fortified against them. Um, but something like a meteor, it's like, where do you go when you have something that that size? Like, Because I got to think, too, it would be so hard to actually know exactly where it's going to land. Like, I mean, you're, where do you evacuate? You know, it, it's just it's a terrifying, terrifying question. It is a terrifying question, and man, that's a crazy disaster, man. <laughs> like I think that the, 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 I got the, into the uh, rabbit hole on this dude, one for hours. The <laughs> fact that there's like conspiracy theories around like the origins of it, I think I'm interested in your thoughts on this. I think that future disasters or current slash future disasters are going to have less controversy because of the amount of technology we have to measure the world around us absolutely yeah i think disasters that occurred pre-1950 have a lot more ambiguity and because that ambiguity is it's a lot more i think in my in my mind it's kind of intrigued because of the like idea that we don't really know exactly what happened we just know the either the eyewitness accounts that you've described or the effects we see on on our our planet i think that's that's why i think some of these little bit into the technology age but not quite fully 21st century disasters yeah, we don't satellites flying around the planet yeah, yeah exactly. i mean so yeah, yeah. the disaster i'm going to talk about in a few minutes is um only about like 30 years re- before your disaster and i think that that 1800 to 1950 
range is really interesting for disasters because you have a little bit of technology to kind of report on it and see what's happening and kind of like take death counts and understand the scale, but you don't have the technology to understand what this means for humanity on a global scale. Exactly. It's so interesting. I, I, I literally couldn't agree with you more because you're looking at um, you have the capabilities to see what happens. You literally have news press. You have you you like you said, you have technology and things that are you know basically societies that are already formed but you don't have the technology in place to actually understand what caused or what, ha- you know, sometimes even what happened. So uh, it's very interesting time period. I can understand back then why conspiracy theories were such a popular thing, you know, and uh, we probably, I know we were talking about how technology helps reduce um, probably the conspiracy theories all float around natural disasters, but there's always a crazy, you know, group of people in the rabbit hole. So even now, you can uh, find some some crazy uh, groups out there that still think the Tunguska event was something much different. <laughs> yeah. So well, um, uh, if if new theories come out, definitely we'll have to update the the podcast listeners on on anything new. Thank you, Sam, for sharing such a fascinating event. I am very like kind of on an eerie edge about this Tunguska event because of how crazy it was. Yeah. And like the potential that it could happen again. This is insanity Holy well moly. so i've i've rambled for about 40 minutes now so i think i'm really serious i'm super curious for what you picked out so i kind of want to tee you into this and i want you to tell me what you picked and start telling me what happened all right so uh i have been really f- focused in the last couple months on this um explosion that occurred in 1883 from a volcano in Indonesia. Oh, I've heard about that. Okay, yeah, I'm excited for you to talk about this one. Called Krakatoa. Krakatoa. I mean, dude, listen to the name, man. Krakatoa. That's that sounds a, like a terrifying name. I think the warning signs are there with a name like that. Yeah, yeah so the reason why I kind of honed in on this explosion... So there's been more devastating events than this. Um, and there's been... Uh, yeah, there's been natural disasters that have been much more devastating than Krakatoa. Krakatoa um, erupted in um, the Sunda Strait in Indonesia, and the subsequent tsunami that occurred um, that rose to people report it to being about 100 to 150 feet tall. <clears throat> oh my God! It killed about. It's like interstellar size yeah, waves. Dude, it killed about forty thousand <laughs> yeah. people. It's horrifying. I um, want to talk less about the tsunami, even though that is probably the most devastating fact of this volcano. I want to talk about three things. We're going to talk about sound. Yes. We're going to talk about temperature. And we're going to talk about color. These are all things that are sensory observed by humans. So let's first talk about sound so krakatoa is a volcanic eruption that occurred in 1883 in indonesia and many scientists agree that this is the loudest sound ever recorded in human history oh dude that gives me like chills that's crazy yeah it's 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 pretty amazing so um just a couple of quick stats on the sound so the explosive force was 13,000 times the power of the atomic bomb that annihilated hiroshima so just think about that. 13,000 times bigger Out of than... one volcano. Yeah, one volcano. Yeah. So um, when I was looking at sound um, and trying to capture how 
like how loud this really was. I, w I went on to Google, as people do, and was looking up um, sound decibel charts. So decibels are the, uh, the, the scale that people measure sound in. So if you, if you just Google images and look at sound decibel charts, you can see these nice little like green, yellow, red charts that show like, oh, what's healthy sound? And then you see like what's unhealthy sound turns yellow and then kind of like loud sound turns orange and then really loud, you're gonna lose your eardrums, turns red. Uh, most of these charts go from zero decibels up to maybe 130, 140 decibels. The one I'm looking at right now has zero to 140 where zero is like good sound and then like 30 is like a whisper and then like 80 is like a truck and then 100 is like a helicopter and then it goes all the way up to like fireworks. So the reason I bring this up is because what happened at Krakatoa was off the charts, literally off the charts of what I'm seeing on Google right now. So a barometer at the this Batavia Gas Works that was measuring barometric pressure this was 100 miles away from Krakatoa, registered the spike in pressure at over two and a half inches of mercury. That converts to 172 decibels of sound pressure. So that is, so I'm looking at the scale of Google that says, oh yeah, here's all the sound scales from zero to 140. It is literally 30 decibels above the, the peak of the threshold that this this like scale even had. So, so I have... I have to ask really quick is do you know is there a uh, i guess it probably varies from ear to ear but is there a range where generally people would just have their eardrums blown yeah, out yeah so i mean what's uh, dude that's a great question because so i would say in the range of 120 plus you're in the like hey i probably if you don't have ear protection you probably have the, like potential for ear damage um, once you get 120, 140 plus. So let me, let me like walk this, uh, what's through for you and the listeners. If you, um, witness a, a jet engine starting up, that's about 140 decibels. Um, fireworks that explode three feet away from you is 150 decibels. So that's, that's pretty, that's pretty crazy. And the decibel system is not like a linear system. It's a logarithmic scale. So what that means is that every 10 decibels, you're not moving up 10%, you're moving up 10 times. So the difference between 100 decibels and 110 decibels is not 10% greater, it is 10 times greater. So 110 decibels is 10 times greater than 100 decibels. Yes, yet I knew it wasn't a linear system when a whisper is like 30 and then a firework is 150. So um, yeah, that's crazy. That's, that's such a crazy thing. So somebody on uh, Reddit broke down one of the loudest sounds recorded in modern history, which is the Saturn V rocket going off. So when uh, Saturn V rocket was produced, it was the largest rocket in the world, and it put the uh, astronauts from NASA on the moon. Phenomenal event for humanity. Um, so they... <laughs> this is... <laughs> Like, this blows my mind. Um, yeah, so, tell me, I'm ready to hear it. So the Saturn V <laughs> rocket was, so first of all, <laughs> the Saturn V rocket was so loud, you could see the sound waves. That's how crazy it was. So let's break this down. So <laughs> you're sitting, you're sitting 100 meters away from uh, the Saturn V rocket. This is an unfortunate situation. You should never be 100 meters away from a Saturn V rocket. 
Um, <laughs> no, no, you should not. <laughs> so, listeners, please take note of that. So, at 100 meters, <laughs> the Saturn V rocket would fade to merely 170 decibels. So, put this in perspective. This is 100 meters away from a Saturn V rocket going off. Put that in perspective to the Krakatoa explosion where they measured 172 decibels 100 miles away. Okay? Okay, I have that uh, quick question just again for kind of helping my perspective here. If do we know what is does this what's the drop off of sound between the actual Saturn rocket and if you were um you know, is, is there any type of metric for if you were like X distance away from the rocket, how much the sound tapers off? Yeah. So, um, the, so here, here's the, uh, the drop off. So for a Saturn V rocket, if you're right next to the rocket, it's about, they, they measure it about 220 decibels at hundred meters. They measure it at, uh, 170 decibels. If at 500 meters, you're down to 155. Oh my God. So like, so it drops 50 decibels at 100 yeah, meters, it, it, and this I mean, thing was still, you have, the Krakatoa was 172 at 100 miles. Yeah, you have, so you have, like, astronauts that are on the top of this Saturn V, and they, they had, uh, they didn't have their eardrums blown out, so it drops dramatically every meter that you go. So, like, to your point, oh. it's crazy. So, so we're measuring 100 meters for Saturn V versus 100 miles for, um... <sighs> <laughs> the Krakatoa Holy crap, so, man. So listen to this. So at 100 meters, if you were standing in front of a Saturn V rocket, it would fade to the merely 170 decibels. Let me describe to you what it would feel like if you were standing there. First of all, you would be unable to breathe or likely see it all from the sound pressure. Glass would shatter. Fog would be generated as the water in the air dropped out of suspension in the pressure waves. Your house at this distance would have roughly 50% chance of being torn apart from the sound pressure alone. Military stun grenades reach this volume for a split second if they are placed to your face. Survival chance from sound alone minimal. You would certainly experience permanent deafness, but probably also organ damage. At this distance, the ambient air temperature would remain relatively steady with perhaps little healing or cooling. However, if you were closer to this, if you were closer than 100 meters, you would you would have a temperature drop of 10 to 25 degrees because of how violently the sound waves are pushing the air and stretching them away from your body. That's how crazy this is. So I'm everything. That's that's dude, nuts. It's crazy. And this is from this is just based on the Falcon rocket right now. Yeah, th all those. Statistics. This is all based on the wow. the Saturn V rocket, um, the Apollo. Yeah, Saturn V. Yeah. So I, I described that because I'm trying to paint a picture for you and the listeners of this is what was what would have been felt a hundred miles away from Krakatoa explosion. So the the closest first hand reports of the Krakatoa explosion happened forty miles away. So less than half the distance of the, the experience I just described. 40 miles away from Krakatoa explosion was a British ship on the ship called the Norham Castle. Captain Sampson was, was captaining the ship. It was about 40 miles away from Krakatoa at the time of the eruption. Here is what he wrote. From the captain's log on this ship, so violent are the explosions that the eardrums of half of over half my crew have been shattered. My last thoughts are with my dear wife. I am convinced that the day of judgment has come. This is a captain's report who has heard a sound wave God. from a volcano explosion 40 miles away that has shattered half the eardrums of his crew. Um, so to, to your point about like 
what can shatter eardrums. 170 decibels apparently can shatter half the eardrums of normal people um, at 40 miles. <laughs> he is he is, he is worried that it's the day of judgment. That's how like crazy this is. The sound wave is insane. Yeah, I don't blame him. Absolutely. You said this was insane. 1883. 1883. Was, was that the year? Yeah, so 1883. So yeah. this is actually an interesting year because. Um, and I really like the late 1800s because this is, we talked about this earlier with yours, where it's like a little bit of technology to measure some of this stuff, but not a whole lot of technology. Um, yeah. Krakatoa can actually, some people consider it the first global event in history. So I mentioned that um, a, a barograph or barometer uh, at this gas works 100 miles away registered the, uh, the pressure spike in two and a half inches of mercury barographs and kind of a pressure measuring devices have kind of been a little bit of like a hobby and a um, scientific device that had been going on over the world. And they, they, uh, since they were in existence at the time of this explosion, they measured the, the pressure spike of this explosion that occurred. This pressure wave circled the earth seven times. That's how crazy it was. Holy yeah. Crap. So, and it's considered one of the first global events in history because there were the existence of the telegraph, telegraph and underwater cables. Um, there was the ability to kind of communicate and kind of feel this um, explosion across the entire world. The pressure wave was tracked um, throughout Europe, throughout United States, throughout South America. It was kind of tracked throughout all of the entire world because it was this Ooh, massive man. spike. So it's like you almost had communication instantly oh, with the entire world, which is kind of kind of interesting. It's that's this is a terrifying one because um, I just can't imagine because as terrifying as other aspects of volcanoes are, like you said, the the concept of being like minding your own business, you know, a hundred miles away, and then just having your eardrums blown oh out. It's just it's I don't know. That's horrifying. A, it's a scope. So, it's a terrifying. So terrifying. So you, we think about like the, the probably the most famous uh, volcano eruption in history is Mount Vesuvius that uh, destroyed the city of Pompeii, where you had lava yes. running down into the city and like destroying the entire city. Krakatoa was on basically on an island, and in our uh, little bit of knowledge about the people that are around there, it did the, the blast of the explosion and the lava did not actually kill any humans. It was the sound waves and the resulting tsunamis that was so deadly that killed the nearly 40,000 people, um, which is kind of crazy to me. I'm really glad you brought this up. And I'm sorry to cut you off again, because like you always think of volcanoes again as uh, a little bit like at least growing up, I thought about them like hurricanes or earthquakes. So yes, they were they were super dangerous, but they were uh, they affected the immediate area that they were occurring in. Um, the idea that really the the lava and the smoke and all that is secondary to the damage that the actual sound waves do is is just it's just a mind blowing concept to me. Honestly, Dude, it is crazy. It's like if this happened today, it'd be insane to see what people how people respond because of how much population is is, ha is uh in those regions that were re previously remote i mean you talk about your tunguska event like what if that happens in a more populated environment i think that's a very terrifying question to ask but it's something we need to ask because these natural disasters yeah. have occurred throughout history and, and arguably will occur moving forward I want to get back to the three things I was talking about. I just kind of talked a little bit about sound. And yes. I want to talk about two other things, temperature and color. So temperature. 
when this volcano erupted, it caused a volcanic winter. Um, because of the ash that was that was pushed out, and it was a significant amount of ash. So it's kind of crazy. Uh, I talked about Captain Sampson of the British ship Northern Norm Castle. When he was writing about the fact that this was Judgment Day, the most dangerous thing for him at that moment was not the tsunami or the sound. It was this concept known as pyroclastic fall. So pyroclastic fall is a uniform deposit of material that has been ejected from a volcanic eruption. So it's basically like you have a volcano that pushes up so much ash that it falls down in such a volume and weight that it crushes what is under it. So if you're a ship at sea and you have a pyroclastic fall that is several inches to maybe a foot or two, it's like a snowstorm of ash that crushes your boat and can capsize your boat under the weight, which is terrifying. I've never heard of this. Wait, so so if a volcano goes off, it has enough pressure to shoot, you know, how I'm assuming hundreds and hundreds of tons of this stuff into the air and the weight but this material that's actually shooting out isn't just like dust it actually has mass to it or there's so much of it that when it comes it has the ability to come back down and literally crush whatever is under it. yes and is that, that that is essentially what we're talking about here so i'm pretty sure that i know i really dumbed it down but dude, yeah that's, that's i mean that's just no, that nuts. was a great description of it because <laughs> like this captain Samson, i'm sure had no um rec like idea that this could be something damaging to him and his his crew but this is probably the craziest thing that he had to deal with so when we talk about the amount of in volume of ash that the the volcano erupted not only does it have this pyroclastic fall that can like land on ships and cities but what that does is it kind of creates this blanket in the atmosphere which ends up blocking the solar radiation from the sun which ends up lowering the temperature of the earth which is crazy yes this explosion yeah, I want to hear. I want to hear this. It part. lowered <laughs> the northern hemisphere southern temperatures by about one to two degrees. So this is happening in Indonesia. Entire... This is probably four to five thousand yes. miles plus from northern hemisphere, um, like the North America. But it is it is lowering the the summer temperature. Like some some reports say. 0.5 degrees Celsius, which is about uh, three quarters of a degree Fahrenheit. Uh, other reports up to two degrees Fahrenheit, which is pretty crazy. And this lasted for several years because of how much dust was in the air. So that temperature was pretty impactful on the climate. So is Krakatoa a potential solution to climate change? Yes, I think that like we... if we uh, if we are worrying about <laughs> global warming, you just need a volcano to explode, and then you'll have uh, global cooling. So sound temperature i've talked about the third one and i think this is the most interesting to be is color so have you ever you you live in texas so you've probably experienced this more than most people if you ever have like a big thunderstorm especially in texas because you have just the big texas sky the sunsets are always more beautiful after the thunderstorm and the reason for that is because the thunderstorm kind of kicks up a lot of the dust in the air and the sun is able to refract off of that dust in particulate yes. matter mm -hmm. in the air and create these beautiful like red, orangey, yellow hues. 
Yes. That's where you get like the nice pink, orange, red hues of a Texas sunset. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's, it's completely beautiful. So imagine that a, a volcano erupts that spews this massive amount of ash into the, the atmosphere and that just kind of floats over the entire world. Um, imagine like the sunsets that you might see for that next year because of how crazy that that ash is um the reason why i asked that question to imagine that is because um there is this very famous uh painter uh named edvard monk and he painted this very famous painting called the scream i don't know if you've seen it sam but it is his picture uh, if i have i'm not aware of it yeah so it's, it's this picture it. of this um this woman that is like standing outside and she has her um, hands up to her cheeks and she's it looks like she's in a silent scream and in the background you see the sky is painted red and one might think that that sky being painted red is kind of an impressionistic style to kind of like oh, the the person is screaming, so we want to paint it in kind of like a kind of horror-style um, feel. That is not true. The reason why this painting is painted red in the background is because Edvard Monk painted this shortly after the explosion of the volcano Krakatoa, and he was walking in his street in Norway, this is Norway compared to Indonesia, many thousands of miles away. Oh, man. And he, yeah, he was walking okay. along the city, and he felt ill and tired because, this is quote from Edvard Monk, the sun was setting, the clouds were turning blood red. I sensed a scream passing through nature. It seemed to me that I heard the scream. I painted this picture, painted the clouds as actual blood. The color shrieked. So the this like very famous painter who painted this very famous painting painted this blood red sky and it was not an impressionistic like oh we're gonna take like reality distort a little bit it was literally what he saw because of what was happening several thousand miles away um many days ago which was the krakatoa explosion that is the thing that is crazy to me about color oh my god that, that's insane so that it's changing senses thousands of miles away are there any like type of eyewitness events close to the you know after the event i mean what were were sunsets even more intense closer to indonesia is there anything about that that's a, that's a great question so i was looking up like i really like you brought in eyewitness events for the tunguska event um there's no eyewitness events for krakatoa within 40 miles because everybody well, understandably died. yeah um, the the closest eyewitness event was on the uh the british ship the norm castle 40 miles away where they had half their crew um having their eardrums blown out i have not researched um about the sunsets in indonesia post that um i just thought it was interesting because this is such a famous painting that uh came up um uh, and it was thousands of miles away so i didn't i really didn't know any of this i'm so glad yeah, you picked this because I, I did not know volcanoes could do these things it's crazy to people i mean it's horrifying but it's it's absolutely interesting crazy. information and like we yeah. talk about these volcanoes that exist in um throughout the world that are active or inactive and they're just kind of sitting there and we we don't really think about the fact that they're sitting bombs and krakatoa 
is a prime example of this. That was amazing. And I don't want to downplay tornadoes, earthquakes, um, you know, hurricanes, but to me, yeah, I mean, just hearing this, and I'm kind of, of course, knew this a little bit, but like volcanoes are just on another level of natural disaster for our planet. Yeah. And like you said, they are located all over the planet. There's active volcanoes all over. It's, it's like you're saying, it's just like, it's a terrifying sitting time bomb that's there. Talking about terrifying <laughs> so. sitting time bombs and kind of looking to the future, I want to pivot us to our final phase of yes. this podcast, which is really exciting, which is kind of a what if scenario. Um, I think we played around a little bit with what ifs when we talked about um, the Marvel Cinematic Universe and like looking at, hey, if we could play God and change things, what would we do? Um, this is a little bit more morbid uh, what if scenario where we're looking at, hey, what are some of the craziest natural disasters that either occurred in the past and have not occurred recently or have never occurred but have the potential to occur and wreak havoc on the world? What are some of the ones that stand out to us? And we while we both picked um, one natural disaster to kind of focus on for this podcast, we've also picked one potential natural disaster to talk about for this what-if scenario phase. And I'm excited to hear what yours is, Sam, because like, I think yes. we're going back to uh, we're going back to impacts. If, that, if I, if I understand this right. Yeah, so, and the reason I had to go with this is I, there are so many others out there that I looked at um, that, of course, there's tons of them, but to me, um, the more and more I read about Tunguska, I just it, it was crazy to me how lucky our planet was that this occurred where it did yeah. uh, in 1908. And to know that that really is just a matter of time, it's not really an if, it's just a when yeah. um, another comet or asteroid is going to hit our planet. It, it's a terrifying thought. And before I started researching this, I had no idea that... Uh, meteors had the possibility to explode in our atmosphere i didn't know that either um, that's crazy yeah you can call the meteor burst and so to me that was that's the thing that scares me it's just again i think the part that's terrifying is how existential it is because again there's there's all these terrifying things on our planet but the the idea of an extraterrestrial threat that we know um no is coming but we have no, no ability to do anything about it i think that's what scares me is that mm. we have technology now that could tell me hey the asteroid or a comet is inbound to earth and it's going to hit it's going to make impact yeah uh and we have an idea of where it might land um but and that's it that's literally all there i mean there's no way at least to all i know at least with our current there's no there's nothing to prevent it or prepare for it like like an earthquake it is because like an earthquake's like oh hey you know we'll start to we're i mean again a lot of these things are terrifying they have tons of you know i know earthquakes can cause tsunamis there's uh, a lot of other terrifying natural disasters that occur but the idea of just not having the ability to really do anything about it i mean you're literally sitting there just kind of twiddling your thumbs once you find out it's coming um unless there's like a secret uh, secret organization that our tax to pay your dollars are going to i don't know about um uh, which, by the way, I'm hoping by the end of this podcast, I mean, you have a really good conspiracy theory that we can start and just start getting going on the Internet. I think that'd be really yeah, fun. Yeah, I mean, I think they're like the, the best way to get canceled in today's modern culture is to kind of manufacture a conspiracy theory and push it into the Internet. So I'm kind of hoping that we uh, we enter into those ranks of uh, <laughs> of podcasts that have been canceled. I'll, I'll, so. Yes, I'm, I'm ready. Uh, that's, the thing, that's the nice part, too, is, uh, you know, uh, again, We'll have to find out uh, if we get listeners on this. But if we do, um, 
we're going to come after y'all with our conspiracy theory. We're going to make everybody leave. Everyone's going to run. And also, uh, we'll probably <laughs> so. uh, appreciate any type of funding that you guys can provide our way because uh, we'll probably be out of jobs and trying to survive and provide for our families <laughs> because everybody's yeah. uh, shunned us. So. We'll be the first podcasters to exclusively take donations through GoFundMe. Yeah, yeah. it's going to be a Kickstarter <laughs> so. that uh, <laughs> that funds my next week's lunches. Yeah, or we could do a Kickstarter to fund our next conspiracy. So, which which probably would be more interesting. <laughs> Speaking of conspiracies, let's get back to what is Sam? Yeah, we're off track. What is the the natural disaster that either has occurred or could occur that I don't want to say terrifies you most, but like makes you most interested to research and maybe prepare for? Oh man, uh, again, I guess the scariest ones are ones you can't. But for me, I think would be. Um, would actually be earthquakes because I, I, the thing that's terrifying. I mean, the one terrifying aspect of them are, aren't as much the earthquake as much as the uh, again. There's so many times where they produce tsunamis, yeah. and it's terrifying because a lot of the accounts I hear about those is people are just going along their days chilling, and all of a sudden a, a 60, 70 foot wave or whatever just smashes on their coast. And I think that's probably the big one for me because that's when I feel like um, you can somewhat prepare for it to an extent, but like you have to be ready. You have to have like a go plan. Uh, if you live on the coast, you know, because I think once those alarms start sounding, there's it's not like you have a two day warning, like with a hurricane or something. It's like you you got to go like now. You know? Yeah. Um, I mean, w- forward warning is pretty important um, in, in the the one I'm going to talk about. You have about 12 hour warning, but uh, a lot of them you don't have warning at all. Yeah. And actually, that I guess concludes um Mine, again, I know is just uh, going into the, the meteors, but I, I am really curious to hear yours. If I recall, yours has to do, uh, yours, your or, uh, one that you're scared of is an extraterrestrial one. It is, and it's kind of interesting because, um, like, you were the one that talked about the uh, the extraterrestrial disaster and the Tunguska event, which absolutely terrifying. Um, I'm definitely going to be researching that more after this. The natural disaster that kind of freaks me out as as far as uh, what could occur in the future is uh, what's known as a Carrington event. So the Carrington event, it's actually one event. It occurred in 1859, so several years before um, both uh, the disaster that I described as Krakatoa and, and your um, Tunguska event in 1908. It was a solar storm that took place in 1859 that was um, observed by a, a, an astronomer, um, Richard Carrington, who saw this massive solar flare in when he was looking um, uh, like he's, he's looking through a telescope and trying to look at the sun. He saw the solar flare it, and he saw this. For our listeners really quick. Yeah. Could, could you explain or uh, a quick definition of a solar flare? I'm sure most people know, of course, but just um, yeah. So just for information, yeah. Sake. So um, the solar flare. So they actually the technical term that we're going to talk about is the coronal mass event, which is basically like like solar storms that kind of like s- spray out off of its um, like the surface of the sun, and this coronal mass ejection. Um, is like a, a large solar flare that creates a magnetic storm that propagates from the sun out into the universe. 
And if you happen to be in the path of that propagation of that solar flare and that geomagnetic storm, you're going to feel the um, the impacts of that geomagnetic storm. Solar storms are very common. Um, they happen very regularly. It's it's something that um, satellite operators have to see. Deal lots with. of clickbait articles for those. Yeah, yeah, like satellite operators have to deal with these pretty pretty regularly, where they're um, like maybe turning their um, solar panels away from the sun at certain times or trying to divert the path of their satellites in order to avoid the massive radiation from the sun at certain events. So geomagnetic and solar storms are not uh, abnormal events. What was an abnormal event was this Carrington event, this um, coronal mass ejection that occurred in 1859 where uh, Richard Carrington saw that there was these massive white light flares that occurred uh, and then what happened was a burst of magnetized plasma from the sun's up, upper atmosphere pushed forward out of the sun. And uh, about 18 hours later, it impacted um, the earth and unleashed the force from this geomagnetic storm onto the planet. And it knocked out telegraph lines. It basically knocked out anything that was electromagnetic. So because they this Richard Carrington saw this impressive flare and then the next day he realized that telegraph lines were down he made the connection that oh shoot um there's this is probably correlated this solar flare this coronal mass ejection affected the telegraph lines that were um operating in 1859 this is really interesting to me because since 1859, we have had significant infrastructure upgrades that have dealt with um, that electricity all would be impacted by something like that. Exactly, yeah. dude. It's it's kind of crazy. So the, the the thing I want to talk about is like what happens if a Carrington event or they they talk about it um, is a, the perfect CME. So the perfect coronal mass ejection occurs. So um, the Carrington event was an imperfect CME, but uh, there is speculation and simulation that a perfect CME could occur and impact the Earth and cause significant damage. Um, if this occurred, so, yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, quick two questions for you on here. So, when if a Carrington event occurred, I guess this would be based on the size of it, uh, or I should say, a new one, a new solar, new solar storm. Or solar flare, would that impact? Uh, is it pretty much the whole planet, a, a specific portion of the planet? And then, in addition to that, are the people that are affected or in the range of this? Uh, are there any symptoms for people that get hit with something like yeah, this? Yeah. So, I mean, that's a, it's a great question. I think one of the um, interesting things about um, CME events is that they're really um, going to impact the hemisphere that is facing the event when it occurs. So, if 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 a uh, perfect cme event occurs it's going to propagate away from the sun at a speed they estimate around 3,000 kilometers per second which would basically get to the earth in about 12 hours and if it gets to the earth whatever side of the earth is facing this propagation wave of geomagnetism is going to feel the, the brunt of the damage um, so that's kind of interesting because if it happens to north america 
um, that means South America might be saved from this. Or if it ha hits uh, um, China and Russia, maybe the United States is kind of That safe. is crazy. When we talk about effects, when we talk about effects, it's going to be um, a significant geomagnetic storm. So you're going to wipe out electromagnetic capabilities for the entire face of the Earth that is impacting. What I mean by that... So half... So half the planet loses everything yeah, electrical. You're talking about power grids are down. Um, you might have so you have Holy you have crap. twelve hours, so you might have uh, the ability to unplug your computer, unplug your um, electronics, maybe unplug your stove, so that way those individual components are not fried. But the the most dangerous um, thing about this is the fact that um, transformers are not immune to being hit. And what I, what I mean by transformers, I'm talking about the fact that um, power distribution companies will take high power, so um, above 10,000 volts, maybe 10 to 40,000 volts, and they'll propagate it along um, a distance, and then they'll transform it, and they'll downgrade it to... Uh, maybe several thousand volts and then ultimately downgraded again to be like to the 120 mm. volts that is at your house. The high voltage to low voltage transformers are devices that are very um, complex to build and they take several years to build. And those devices are very susceptible to damage. So if you have a CME event, it's going to propagate this power, this geomagnetic power and potentially fry your um, transformers that are that are downgrading the power from these power distribution panels. So basically, you're you're taking the power grid offline for at least one year, yeah, so you're, two years, maybe even more. So for half the planet, you're talking about yeah, loss of power grids long term for a minimum of a year. Yeah, like what would what would happen if you if you lost power? Yeah. For two years, and uh, I guess would be data centers, um, most electronics, and, and we have such a global economy now that yeah, the the half of the planet that gets hit is going to be in way worse condition, but the other half of the planet's going to be probably heavily impacted too, just by yeah, the tr like those it's going to be ca cascading effects. We see like COVID affects uh, supply chains that affect so many things. Like how crazy would it be if like half the yeah. planet didn't Man. have power? And like you think about like okay, would you have like international agreements between like let's say us and china where they china would maybe subsidize to pay for um the expedition of power transformers for distribution units in the united states like, i don't know like this is like a completely uncharted territory this could totally shift shift world powers across the entire planet depending on where this hits which half of the planet gets impacted you're talking about i mean you know entire continents essentially getting um you know thrown back to i mean i'm not going to say the stone age but are getting reverted back a hundred years. You yeah, know, absolutely. Um, the amount of damage to the economy and to, to production that would happen for being out of power for several years, that's massive. Absolutely massive. So it'd be really interesting as far as like yeah. a like a social argument to try to think about what would happen if that happened and um, would uh, like competitive global world, world powers step into help out other adversary countries like that'd be interesting to see that is very interesting how would how would aid work on something like that and uh it, it's just crazy too because the it would get so complicated trying to predict something like this not knowing which half of the planet is going to hit so 
you know, you're not going to know if, you know, how are we going to act if it, you know, hit China and Russia and how are they going to act if it hit us, you know, things like that. Um, and I may be saying something foolish, assuming that we're on different hemispheres, but you know, just th- that concept is crazy. I, yeah, this one scares me a lot. I, I do have to ask another question really quick before we wrap things up today. What is, is there any type of statistic or I guess there's not really enough historical history to know, but like, is there a way to beyond it happening and us having 12 hours? Is there something as far as predictions go for like a time frame when something like this could happen or what's the, the, the statistical uh, metrics for something like yeah, this? Yeah, so since this is a geomagnetic occurrence, um, you're kind of relying on how good you are able to sense the effects of the sun flaring, which is why on the perfect CME, you would see potentially 12 hours of head time because you would have in real time be able to see the solar flare occurring on the sun and you'd be able to say okay based on that solar flare we have 12 hours to occur so the head time is actually the lead time is actually not very great because i mean the solar flares occur kind of at random intervals and and um trajectories off of the sun like the carrington event is not nearly as bad as it could have been because it was a little bit of a glancing blow it's kind of kind of goes back to your um, description of the Tunguska event where like this was not the most amount of power directed at the earth that could have been. It was a little bit lucky yeah. that there was a glancing blow. The Carrington event was the same way. If, if we describe the perfect CME, the perfect coronal mass ejection, which we say perfect and kind of like a morbid turn term, the perfect, sense of it is a coronal mass ejection from the sun that is perfectly aligned directly at the earth at the time of its ejection and that's the perfect sense of it and we can't How? plan that we you can't predict that i know we can't you can't you can't plan or predict that I, but do but scientists do believe this is something that i mean again obviously with time uh, those those chances go up but they believe this is something that could definitely happen and that there's a, a solid likelihood of this happening in the future i mean so maybe not within our lifetimes well, but. It, it might um there's so there's these ideas of solar maximum and solar minimum so it's a it's a cycle there's a solar cycle so there's um in the solar maximum there's a, a greater number of sunspots which are these kind of like solar storm mass like coronal mass ejections um in the solar minimum there's a is a lower um amount of that the next solar maximum i believe is in 2025 and these cme events coronal mass ejection events are most like prolific around the solar maximums so we are sitting in 2022 in three years we have another solar maximum in the two years preceding and the two years post the solar maximum, those are that's probably the biggest window for having the opportunity for these these uh, perfect CME events. So um, I think in 1883 was the Carrington event. Um, 18 uh, sorry, I might be missing 1859. Um, several years later, after the Carrington event, was the sol- solar maximum. So it was kind of like leading up to the solar maximum. So we're basically in the window again of having the potential for a massive geomagnetic storm, which is kind of disturbing, but also it is it's something to think about where you got to prepare and you got to think about this and 
hope that we can uh, avoid something as devastating as a Carrington event. Yeah, we'll all go live with your parents uh, on on the acres out there. Yes. That'll be that'll be our game plan. <laughs> so, man, what a, this has been a crazy episode. Again, I think. Um, like usual, <laughs> we went quite a bit oh, we past did. what we thought we were going to uh, on time. But this was uh, super interesting, and I know I kept it going asking all these questions. But I, I was legit intrigued by some of these uh, some of these events you chose. Dude, so this is this is so crazy, man! Like yeah. some of the stuff we talked about, I'm so like almost like chills up my spine. How crazy they are! So, yeah, it's just crazy that the planet we live on can do this kind of stuff to us. Yeah. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah. Talk, and like, and it's not even the planet. It's like the comets and, and asteroids that uh, that attack the planet, like the Tunguska event. Like that thing is gonna keep me up for hours, probably for the next <laughs> yeah. week. Yeah, right <laughs> so before a saying. Monday work week. Yeah, it's, uh, this was a great idea to have the podcast today. <laughs> so, oh man. No, but seriously, this has been awesome. This I love. This has been awesome. Yeah, really. It's always great hearing uh, hearing from you, BV, and I, I love getting to steal you from your wife, even if it's just for an hour and a half at a time. So uh, this is Sam and Harlan saying goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>